There's a uh, story I just found out about yesterday. It's a very sweet story about a, uh, well, it's a funny story, but about a sweet woman named Noelle. Noelle lived in Australia, but she was born in Burundi, Africa. And uh, she had lived in Australia for several years, had not been able to get back to see her family in a while, and received a message that her mother had actually gotten sick. And before she was able to go back to Africa to see her, her mother died. And Noelle was just crushed. And so she, she flew back to Burundi. And the rest of the family couldn't afford to go back. So her husband, Belinga, and, and children uh, were, were still at home in Australia. And while they were still there, they received the message um, that Noella had died tragically in, a, in an accident. And her remains, uh, she was cremated, had her remains shipped back to Australia. And Belinga was just crushed. And, uh, you know, his, his children were crushed. They'd lost their grandparents and mother on the same week. And they buried her uh, remains. And, and there was just a long time of mourning and, and sadness. And uh, Belinga then, you know, when the, when the last friends left, he, he turned to, to walk back to his car and waiting for him at the car was Noella. And she said, surprise! And he was terrified. He thought he'd seen a ghost. And then he fell on his face and started confessing. Why was he confessing? Well, let me tell you what happened to Noella. Noella went to her mother's funeral. It was very sad. Uh, had to get away from the family. You've all been there. Sometimes you just need to grieve alone. So she went out in the backyard to grieve alone. While she was there, three men came up to her, put a gun on her, to her head, told her to get in the car, blindfolded her, tied her hands, threw her in the back seat of a car, drove her to an empty warehouse, pulled her out of the car, put her in a chair in the warehouse, stood in front of her and said, your husband has hired us to kill you. They called Belinga and they said, the deed is done. She is asleep forever. Hung up and then they said, we don't hurt women. They untied her, unblindfolded her, and let her go. And so, <laughs> when she gets back to Australia, <laughs> Belinga's terrified. Falls on his face, begins to confess his sins. She doesn't, she's not too forgiving, and he is still in jail today. Gets out next year. Uh, why do I say all that? It's shocking to see somebody come back from the grave. You don't expect it. You would be terrified. You would fall on your face as though dead, just like John does in, in Revelation 1. And just like the disciples do in our text. No one expects to see Jesus raised from the dead. But, and this is such important news to you, it's important to you, and so I'm, I always preach on it at least twice because Easter, you know, blah, 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 bunnies and shoes and things. But it's important to you. I want you to understand that when it really dawns on you that Jesus was raised from the dead, when the, when the truth of the bodily resurrection of Jesus dawns on you, it changes everything. Most specifically, it changes our mourning into dancing. Please stand as we read this final text about the resurrection, the final meal that Jesus eats with his disciples in Luke, uh, in the book of Luke, Luke 24, verses 36 through 53. 
As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass and all of our glories like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. When the truth of the bodily resurrection dawns on you, it changes everything. First of all, it changes your mourning into dancing. Uh, The first thing I want you to see in this text is that Jesus restores the faithless. He he appears to his disciples. I'll remind you of the context. Jesus had been walking with Cleopas down to Emmaus. Uh, He eats with Cleopas. um, When He's explaining to Cleopas that this is all that the Old Testament said was going to happen. They, he goes through the scriptures explaining this is how you knew, should have known that, that the Christ was going to be killed. This is how you should have known he would have been raised from the dead. And then when he breaks the be- bread, when he breaks the bread, Cleopas' eyes are opened and he sees the Christ. Now that's a, that's a beautiful parenthesis. I'm not sure I pointed this out um, last week, but if you'll remember... You remember what happened when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit? Their eyes were opened and they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed. And now when Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are opened and they see the Christ. And they're clothed with his righteousness. And now Jesus, uh, Cleopas ran back to Jerusalem and he told the disciples, It's true, the Christ, Jesus is raised from the dead and Peter has seen him. And then Jesus appears in their midst. And let me give you just kind of some brief, I want to just talk about this briefly because I don't want these details to bother you, right? So a lot of people have spilled ink talking about Jesus had to walk through the door because it was locked. That's not what the text says. It does not say he walked through the door. It said he appeared in their midst though the door was locked. And what he did was he stepped out of heaven into their midst. And you're wondering, how can he do this? I want you to do this with your kids this afternoon. I want to do what I'm about to do with you right now, okay? Especially those of you with good imaginations. Close your eyes. Now imagine a room with your friends in it. And you're not there. Now imagine yourself being there. 
Okay, open your eyes. Did you have to walk through a door to get there? No. You just imagine yourself going there. You control what is in your imagination. And so all you have to do is step into the picture and step out of the picture. You are able to do that. Now, I'm not saying we live in the mind of God. Supposedly that's a heresy, and I'm not sure why, but anyway. Um, and, and, and we're real. We're not just figments of God's imagination, but we are the image of God. And just like you can imagine yourself anywhere, God can put himself anywhere. Heaven is not a bazillion miles away in the sky and space. It's right here. You just can't see it. Just like nitrogen is right here, and you can't see it. It's in all the air. It's like 60% of air. And you don't have the, the sensors to pick it up. You don't have the sensors to pick up angels and Jesus, but he is right here. And he can step in and out of it. And so he steps into the room with the disciples. And he says these beautiful words, peace to you. Peace. Think about who was there. Think about what they must have felt. And think about how Jesus comforts them. He, he, he comes to the sad. He comes to the sad. The first person he appears to after the resurrection, Mary, she's weeping. She sees the angels. Please tell me what you've done with him. Mary, he's risen just as he said. She was still so sad. She sees this man, the gardener, she thinks. And she says, just tell me where you've taken him and I will go to him. I'll take care of his body. Just tell me where you put it. She was just so sad. She was so sad she couldn't see the Lord. And Jesus says, Mary, and her eyes are opened. And that's important. If you've ever really been deep in mourning, if you've ever just grieved and you didn't think you were ever going to stop grieving, then you know that feeling. You begin to feel that God has abandoned you. And I want you to know that is not the case. He promises in, in Psalm um, Psalm 37, he is near to the brokenhearted and close to the downtrodden in spirit. He is right there. And he comes to the guilty, the shamed. Can you imagine how Peter felt? How is he even able to be in a room with the other apostles? I, I did it. I, I let him down. I, I denied him. It, it, I told him that night I was going to die with him. And, and just even a servant girl, this little young teenage girl, she looked at me and said, said you were with him. Maybe, I don't know, maybe she was asking because she wanted to know more about him. I don't know. I was just so scared. And I denied him. And Jesus comes and he, he comes to us in our shame. And he says, peace. Peace. I knew you were going to do it. I had already told you you were going to do it. I loved you then and I love you now. Peace. He comes to the doubting. Uh, this, uh, this, the story of Thomas isn't told in this text, but we all know it. Thomas wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared to the disciples. And when he got home and saw the rest of him, he's like, I'm not going to believe it. I just don't believe it. You guys are all idiots. I knew it. But I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to be taken in again. And Jesus doesn't, you would think he would have come back and just like smack Thomas around. Like, come on! Did you get it? But he's not. He's gentle. And he says, touch me. 
feel me. Put your hand in my side. Don't continue disbelieving, but believe. He is there to restore us. Our sin draws him out. He is there for the slow to believe and the shamed and and the sad and the grieving. He is there for the failures. And he says peace to all of us. The second thing I want you to see is that Jesus not only restores the faithless, but he confronts our doubts. He confronts our doubts. He he says very clearly he wants them to touch him, feel him, and not be doubting. Now, the, the thing that's striking to me about this text is it's, it is as if, it's just as if, Luke knew what our doubts were going to be 2,000 years later. And he addresses the two biggest kind of potholes around Christianity that we live in. We just live in this, this pollution. And the first one is, uh, Jesus very specifically says, I am not a spirit. I am flesh and blood. Why is that important? Because everybody is fine with you loving Jesus as long as it's spiritual. You have your spiritual reality. That's what encourages you. That's what empowers you. That's what helps you deal with your struggles. That's what works for you. That's great. It's spiritual, man. I get it. I get those same things from, from you know, breathing cannabis. I get the same things from watching rainbows. We all need our spiritual lifts. Isn't that great that you have yours? And, and Jesus says, no. I'm concrete. I am physical. Touch me. And the disciples never get over that. First John is one of the last letters written in the New Testament. And I love the way it starts. First uh, John writes and says, that which we touched, that which we held in our hands is what we proclaim to you. It's, it's real. And that's where the rubber meets the road because everybody's fine with you having your spiritual experiences, but nobody wants to talk about anything that actually is concrete and affects life. And the second it begins to affect your life is when people are like, no, 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 wait. And it's, and it's, it's a, an infection that's growing throughout modern Christianity, and it has been for a long time, that, it's, that, that, that Jesus Christ demands lordship over your body because he still has his body, and it is concrete. Um, a couple years ago, there was this weird show called The Rehearsal. I, don't, I can't say I recommend it. I think it was just too weird. But anyway, whatever. Do what you decide to do with that. I was on HBO, and it's about this guy who was trying to rehearse for life, and so he could, whatever. Um, anyway, all that to say, one of the main characters, this person who, who uh, was chosen for the role of his rehearsal wife, um, she uh, was a Christian. And... Uh, and, and when the movie f- show first starts, there's a guy there who's like his stand-in for him. And so he's going to be her husband. And he is also a Christian. But he doesn't understand why this stand-in wife, who he's just met, won't sleep with him. And she says, look, I, I don't do that. That's in the Bible. And he goes, no, no, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus just like you do. 
but it's okay for us to sleep together. And she keeps saying, no, it's not. And he gets mad and leaves in the middle of the night. Uh, it affects our body. It's real. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about that in Corinthians. It, it, what you do with your body matters. It's not just a spiritual, inspirational truth, but Christianity is about the body. Don't link the body of Christ uh, to a prostitute. It's, it's real. You're one with him. It's concrete. And that affects more than just your sexuality. That affects your money. This is one of the reasons why we pass offering plates around. It's not just because I hope you like my sermons enough to pay the bills and keep me fed. We pass the offering plates around because you need to preach this message to yourself that this gospel is real. It is very, very easy to say, yeah, man, Jesus, I love it. I believe in it. It is very, very hard to write a check. It's concrete. It affects my life. That's hard. And you need to preach that message to yourself. This is real. So it's real for everybody. That's the, the first kind of big, you know, sin, pothole, whatever you want to call it, that we, we deal with. It's not just a spiritual reality. It is a physical reality. The second thing he deals with um, is, is even harder, actually. But he goes through the Bible. Now, Obviously, I wasn't there, and I, gosh, I wish we had more information. And it's always tempting to kind of put your personality on the Jesus' personality, which is dangerous. Don't do it, but I'm about to. He had to get a little sarcastic during this, right? He's like, guys, you didn't get it. I was giving you hints from the cross. Like Psalm 22, hadn't you ever read it? Yeah, we read it. That was, that was David, though. That wasn't you. It says they've pierced my hands and feet. When did that happen to David? I quoted that psalm. I was up there. I said, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just thought you were having a bad day. No. That's what it said I was going to say. I was spread out. I was pushed out of joint. I was surrounded by those who mocked me. Oh, that was you? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes through the whole Bible to explain how the Old Testament points to him and how when Abraham and Isaac are going up on the mountain and God has asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and Isaac asks, well, here's the fire, there's the knife, here's the wood, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God himself will provide a lamb. And then remember the, when y'all first met me, you remember what the, John the Baptist said? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You didn't connect that. No. You remember how Moses talked about the Passover lamb and, and how, putting your hand on it and slaughtering it and putting the, the blood on your house. And as long as you're under the blood of the Passover lamb, you, you'll, be, you'll be saved. And, and how I, I was killed at Passover. You didn't connect that. No. You remember how Isaiah said that, that God had put his, uh, all of our transgressions and sins on, on him, the, the, the suffering servant, and, and he would be counted among the transgressors and killed among uh, the, the criminals but buried among the rich? You didn't pick up on that? No. And he opens their eyes so they understand the Scriptures. Now, why is that important to you? 
Because the other cultural fallacy that we live in is that it's great to have Jesus, just not the Jesus of the Bible. You can have Jesus without the Bible. You can have, you know, the Jesus of, of Jennifer Hatmaker. You can have the Jesus of Richard Rohr. You can have the Jesus of Elizabeth Gilbert. You can have the, the Jesus of a lot of, of, of leaders, people who have achieved the, the level of being the, the guru of our culture, who are just telling you to live life to the fullest and enjoy it to the fullest. And you can forget about all the stuff that the Bible says. And you need to know this, as unpopular as it sounds, you can't have the real Jesus without the Bible. He is the Jesus of the Bible. Of the Bible. That's the only one who saves. I had a uh, missions professor named Elias Medeiros, and he would always say it like four or five times a year, and he was so loud. Uh, he was Brazilian, and you could always tell which classroom Elias was teaching in. It's like, oh, he's over there. And he would boom it out three or four times a year. There are 10 million men in Brazil named Jesus, and none of them can save you. There's all kinds of Jesuses out there. There's only one who can save you. It's the one of the Bible. It's the one of the Bible. It's the one who said it's better to have your arm chopped off than to commit adultery. It's that one. And his opinions haven't changed. And, and you're not going to find fulfillment in life anywhere else but, but in his word because he made you and he cares for you, and so only He can tell you who you are and what you are. Jesus restores the faithless, and He, he confronts our doubts, and He confronts our, our issues and our hiding places. And thirdly and finally, Jesus turns our mourning into dancing. He turns our mourning into dancing. You see, there's, there's three seminal moments in a Christian's life. The first one is a bad day. It's the day you realize you actually are a sinner. Um, a friend of mine took his, wife, his mom to dinner a few, several years ago. She's gone on to be with the Lord now, but took her to dinner, and, and uh, he, was, he was, said something about, you know, Christ dying for sins. I don't know exactly what it was. And she looked at him, and she goes, you don't think I'm a sinner, do you? And uh, he said, yes, Mom, we're all I know, I know we're sinners, but a sinner? You don't mean I think I'm one of those. And, and we all have lived those days, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I've sinned. I've, you know, told a fib here and there. But that day comes when it dawns on you that your heart and soul are dark. And you put yourself first in every situation. And you think of yourself first in every situation. And you are guilty. That dawning of that day is a bad day. And you want to crawl under a rock. The second seminal day, which hopefully for you, I hope, came as soon after that first day as possible, is the day you realize that Jesus forgives sins. And our sins are put upon him and he washes us clean, and he accepts sinners, and he receives sinners, and he invites all who are weary or heavy laden to come to him and find rest. He offers to wash all who are dirty and come to him. He gives us new hearts. He doesn't, I always 
thought it was funny. I had a pastor who used to always say, you know, when I was a kid, I kept hearing preachers say, come give Jesus your heart. Jesus doesn't want that filthy thing. He wants to give you a new heart. He, he, he receives you and he cleanses you and he heals you. And that's a beautiful day and you just, you, you sing and you cry and you are filled with joy. And then the third seminal moment, and it, I need to be careful, I need to correct a couple of things. Um, is when you finally, true, when it truly dawns on you, when the coin finally drops, that the bodily resurrection is true. And I've said last week, and I've, I'll keep saying it, I, it was a long time before it really dawned on me. Now, there was never a time in my life when I denied the resurrection. I've been saying the Apostles' Creed since I was six. I don't remember a time that I ever didn't say it or believe it. I was ordained and said I believed in the resurrection of Christ. And I I did, but there was a moment when all of a sudden, and I was on an airplane. I can tell you where I was. I was reading N.T. Wright, and I was like, holy smoke, this stuff is real. And if you know me, you know this is very out of character. It was all I could do to not grab the guy next to me and go, it's true. He got out of the grave. I didn't. Don't worry. You know me. There was no way that was ever going to happen, but I really, really, really wanted to. But I did. Hope somebody told him. It's true. When it, when it dawns on you that it's, it's true. It's true. It, it changes everything. It, it changes our view of death. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, as the Apostle Paul says, so will we be. And death is still terrible, and it's awful, and it's sad to lose your mom, and it's sad to lose your spouse. It's awful, but it's not eternal. And you will hold that person again, and you will hug them again, and you will cry on their shoulders again, real physical tears of joy on a real physical shoulder. You will do it again, because Jesus is raised from the dead. You... it. it affects our our regrets I, I look back on on things that that I've done to to my kids and if I could go back and undo them I would but I can't and they are what they are and they're great but there's one they're not nearly as good as they're going to be and when I see them after the resurrection they'll be perfect and happy, and we'll finally be able to tell each other that we actually like each other. And, you know, that's hard for guys. We don't talk. We hand each other money. My hand, they receive. They know the message. <laughs> Side note, it is hilarious how the only time I ever see I love you, Dad, is when i just given somebody money. I can, and I got the text to prove that, but it's fine. I'll take it. I'll buy your love anytime I can. It, it, heals, it heals that regret you feel for other people who've just had a terrible life. You know, I've got a friend named Brian. He's been a friend now for 15 years. He was born into foster care. He's mentally impaired from the moment of his birth. He grew up in foster home after foster home. He grew up being abused mentally, physically, and sexually from the time he was a child. He was put in behind barbed wire for the first time when he was 15, and he's been in and out of prison, primarily in ever since and he's a you know he, he's a Christian he, he came to the Lord and he loves the Lord but he is just as broken and he's in his 
40s? And he's got four more years in prison? And, I mean, you just kind of look at him and you go, you never had a chance. Or you can believe in the resurrection and go, brother, you have no idea how good it's going to be. The day is coming when all of this stuff and all of these scars and all those god-awful tattoos will be gone and you'll be perfect and you'll enjoy forever and ever. It deals with our, with our small regrets. You know, I, yesterday uh, we spent $11,000 on the uh, septic system here on the, at this church. Doesn't that, doesn't that stink, literally? And I was just filled with regret, you know. Like, man, why did we buy this piece of property? Why did we not fix that years ago? Why, why, why? This, this piece of land, it's like an albatross around my neck half the time. We can't afford it. But I really believe in the new heavens and new earth. The new he- earth, this church is going to be on this piece of property without a septic system forever. And in a million years, we're not going to remember that stupid $11,000 except to laugh. We're going to laugh about it. And we're going to worship Jesus right here forever. It heals our regrets. It heals our, our brokennesses. It heals our relationships. It heals our shame because the day is coming when I, I won't feel that, that brokenness anymore. The day is coming when I will be complete. It's real. I want to give you, i got three minutes left, and in those three minutes, I'm going to give you four reasons why you need to believe the resurrection, why you ought to believe it. And I don't know who needs to hear this. Probably you. Maybe you on the screen. I don't know. Uh, the first reason why you need to believe the resurrection is that the movement lived on. If you look at Acts chapter 5, there's a guy named um, Gamaliel, and he was, on the, he was part of the Sanhedrin, and they were trying to decide what to do with these new people following Jesus, even though we've already killed him and he's dead. And Gamaliel says, look, guys, don't worry. This has happened before. Theudius did this. Judas did this. They gathered up a few hundred followers. They, they tried to start something. He died. They were dissipated. It's nothing. It's not going to last. Don't worry. Don't, don't, don't get it all worked up about it. And that's a good question. Why did it last? Why did Jesus tell his people to preach this message to the ends of the earth? And newsflash, if you lived in Jerusalem in the year 35, Tulsa would be the ends of the earth. Like they had no idea. It would be actually significantly beyond the end of the earth. They had no idea we were here. And well, we weren't here. You know what I mean. Why did it live on? Don't say it's because he was such a great teacher, because he was not. He was very weird as a teacher. He actually said, I will judge all people. All nations will be brought to me, and I'm going to be the one who decides whether you go into eternal life or eternal damnation. Don't call him a great teacher. That's weird. If anybody else says that, back away slowly. He said that. Why did the movement live on? According to the Bible, it's because the resurrection is true. Secondly, because the disciples were all tortured. They were hunted. They were imprisoned. They were tortured. Some were decapitated. Some were crucified. We believe that Apostle Peter was crucified upside down, which is just, I can't even fathom the pain. 
And all they had to do is say, we lied. It's not true. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And so if you, if you believe that it was a lie, you're saying these guys lied so they could get tortured to death. That's not why people lie. <laughs> you don't lie so that you can get murdered. You lie so you don't. The third reason is because they lost the tomb. This will be the last one. Let me explain what I mean. In Acts chapter um, 2, Peter says, he is explaining the resurrection. He's explaining why they're out preaching. He's explaining why people are speaking in foreign tongues. And he says, guys, remember Psalm 15? King David said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And we, we all thought it was about him. But we know where that tomb is. We can go to it right now. I can show you the bones of David. That's what they did in those days. They made shrines. They kept burial tombs. You can still go see the burial tomb of Zechariah. You can still go see the burial tomb of David. You cannot go see the burial tomb of Jesus. There are people who will take your money and tell you that it is. They don't know. They do not know. Why did they lose the tomb? Well, if you've ever had a kid go to college or, God forbid, die, then you know why they lost the tomb. Because when you have your son living at home and you walk into his room, you say, good heavens, this stinks. Why are shoes and clothes everywhere? I literally washed your clothes five minutes ago. How do they look like this? You don't get all sentimental, right? It's not a shrine, it's a pigsty. But... When your kid goes to college, when he moves out, you go into that room and you go, oh, shoes. His smell. I'm missing. And you make that room into a shrine. And the first person who touches anything does so with the danger of their own life. Because you don't have your son anymore. You don't have that little boy anymore. Why did the disciples lose the tomb? They didn't need it. They had Jesus. They had the real thing. They didn't need the room that he spent a couple days in. They had him. And, and my question for you is, do you have Jesus? Do you have him? Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us faith. Lord, you know us. You know that all of us need different things to believe, and some need scholastic arguments, and some need experiences, and some need dreams. You know us. You made us. And I pray, Father, for everyone who hears this or is in this room, that you will give us what we need to believe, that we might confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead and be saved. Amen.